has been well told at this point, and experienced firsthand to varying degrees by anyone listening to this episode contemporaneously. But to establish context for this week's topic, let's do a quick summary of how the COVID-19 pandemic started and how we got to where we are now. At the tail end of December 2019, Chinese medical professionals began to treat several dozen cases of pneumonia that had an unknown cause. The Chinese government covered up a lot of the hubbub that was rising and beginning to seep out into the larger international medical community over the next few weeks, but by mid-January 2020, they had reported their first confirmed death from this unknown, seemingly virus-caused illness, and the 61-year-old man who died was a regular customer at a wet market in Wuhan. And there were enough other links to this market where fresh meat and other foodstuffs were sold, including live animals killed on site, that it seemed increasingly likely this market might have been the origin of whatever disease was causing these fast-spreading pneumonia symptoms. By late January, other countries began to confirm cases on their soil, most but not all of them easily traceable to folks who had recently traveled to China. At this point, the Chinese government had locked down Wuhan, a city of more than 11 million people, closing down highways and trains and flights, making it nearly impossible to get in and out of the city, while the government worked on and implemented quarantine procedures to slow or stop the spread of infection. In mid-February 2020, we knew this disease was caused by a coronavirus, and the World Health Organization announced that the disease would be called COVID-19, officially declaring it to be a pandemic on March 11th. Later the same month, we began to see surges in Italy, in Iran, and the CDC in the United States began to issue social distancing guidance. School closures began to pop up around the world. Restrictions began to fall into place. The EU, by mid-March, barred most travel from outside the Union. And on March 24th, the Indian government announced a 21-day lockdown following the grounding of all domestic flights in the country. The U.S. became the epicenter of infections by late March and global cases hit 1 million on April 2nd. And at this point, millions of people around the world had already lost their jobs, and it was becoming clear to more people that this probably wasn't going to be a quick flash-in-the-pan sort of thing that would disappear in a few weeks. The global death toll from COVID-19 surpassed 200,000 by the end of April, and face mask mandates were beginning to show up across countries and industries, with airlines in particular leaning into this concept as they struggled to keep their aircraft moving amidst so much uncertainty and so many new, fairly unprecedented restrictions and bans. By May, several wealthy nations had plunged into economic recessions, and areas that were previously spared from the spread began to see their first cases. A few areas, like the EU, put new policies and restrictions into place that made limited forms of travel from outside the bloc possible again. And some of the earliest hit areas, like Hong Kong, shut back down in mid-July as a third wave 
of infections and deaths rolled through. Stimulus packages began to circulate through global governmental processes by the end of July, with EU leaders setting aside about $850 billion worth of funding to help out nations that were hardest hit by the pandemic, while numbers in the U.S. increased and increased and increased, solidifying the nation's place as the pandemic center of gravity, while the Trump administration pushed to keep infection and death toll numbers from being reported, and Chinese leadership leaned on other governments to stifle reports of their own misinformation and censorship campaigns related to the early days of COVID spread in China. Events, even big and well-funded ones like sports leagues and concert series, were canceled or forced to reschedule, and positive news about vaccine trials began to show up in the press. So at this point, the only real treatments available were very expensive and experimental antibody cocktails, and most of the available tests were expensive and largely unavailable, though less expensive, more accurate tests were slowly appearing on shelves in some parts of the world. Universities in many countries, including the U.S., opened back up in late August, some of them moving most or all of their courses online. But those that had in-person courses saw worrying waves of infection spread, and most of them closed or shifted further online after a few weeks. The global death toll reached 1 million at the end of September, and President Trump became the most recent world leader to test positive for COVID at the beginning of October. Others, like UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, had tested positive and recovered in earlier months, and Poland's president would test positive later in October. The U.S. alone had tallied 10 million infections by early November. The first at-home COVID test was approved by the FDA mid-month, and the antibody treatment Trump had received to help with his infection was approved for use by the FDA at the end of November. On December 2nd, the UK granted emergency authorization to a COVID-19 vaccine produced by Pfizer. The first vaccines were then administered on December 8th. The FDA granted similar emergency authorization to Pfizer's vaccine in the U.S. a few days later, alongside similar authorizations in Mexico, Canada, Saudi Arabia, and a slew of other countries around the world. Moderna's vaccine was given the same approval in the U.S. in mid-December, and 2020 ended with London in a severe lockdown. President-elect Biden saying he would ask Americans to wear masks for 100 days to help slow the spread of COVID in the U.S. And the relatively sparse supplies of mRNA-based vaccines slowly being distributed but rapidly being adopted by healthcare systems globally, though very few of them made it beyond the wealthy world. 2021 opened with new record infection and death tolls and a new public awareness of COVID-19 variants, beginning with what was at the time being called the Brazilian variant, today called Gamma, followed by what is today called the Beta variant, which was originally detected in South Africa. A research team from the World Health Organization was allowed into China to check out Wuhan to see what they could learn about the origins of the coronavirus that causes COVID. But they didn't come to any firm conclusions, in part because the Chinese government kept them from talking to everyone they wanted to talk to and seeing everything they wanted to see. 
Johnson & Johnson's single-dose COVID vaccine got emergency approval in the U.S. in late February 2021, and a report written by those World Health Organization researchers said that it was very likely the disease began in an animal vector and spread to humans shortly before it was noticed by the medical community. Three million people had died of COVID, according to official numbers, which are generally considered to be substantial undercounts for a variety of reasons, by mid-April. And vaccine rollout across several countries, including the U.S., began for all adults, after a period in which only older people and those with immune system issues were able to receive jabs. And by April 18th, half of all U.S. adults had received at least one vaccine dose. Vaccine deployment slowed in the U.S. by the end of April, however, and similar slowdowns were seen in other primarily wealthy countries, in part due to concerns from folks who were being called vaccine-hesitant about how quickly the vaccines were developed and deployed and what that might mean for their efficacy. There was also a whole lot of vaccine misinformation swirling around social media, editorialized news networks, and from quite a few political entities, which made conservatives and far-right people in particular hesitant to receive or vehemently against the vaccines and what they believed the vaccines represented ideologically. As vaccine production increased, programs like COVAX, set up by the UN, increased distribution of doses to poorer countries. But new surges in places like India, which played a vital role in the production of vaccine doses, reduced those supplies and thus distribution to these regions. A newer variant called Delta had been noted earlier in the year, but was becoming dominant in several countries, due in part to its noted ability to dodge some antibody-related protections. So folks who had been previously infected and recovered, and folks who had received vaccines, were more susceptible to this variant than other variants. Delta was also noted for its amplified spreading capabilities, transmitting from person to person more readily than most other variants. By June, we'd seen several waves around the world recur and then subside. We had a lot more data about who was being infected and seeing more significant symptoms, primarily the unvaccinated and those who hadn't already recovered from previous infections. And there was an offset pattern emerging globally of waves and downswings that caused quite a lot of understandable misunderstanding about the nature of the pandemic, as it would sometimes seem to be going away, leading to a laxity in mask wearing and social distancing and the reopening of bars and such, which would then be followed by a significant increase in cases, and sometimes a return to a previous state of overwhelm for local healthcare facilities and medical professionals after a comparably slow period. Rounding into the northern hemisphere's autumn months, it was found that the more contagious Delta variant accounted for about 93.4% of all U.S. cases as of the final weeks of July, and by mid-August, an additional booster shot was approved for immunocompromised people who didn't respond as well as most other recipients to their initial doses of vaccine. After several months during which it seemed like the worst might be over in many countries, those hopes then crushed by new waves leading into the Northern Hemisphere's winter months, vaccines began to be approved in booster form for more people. 
Clinical studies of vaccines in children showed positive results and were approved in many places, and vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaccination sentiment globally remained one of the largest challenges alongside the potency of the Delta variant to controlling viral spread and preventing medical system collapse across much of the wealthy world. While in poorer parts of the planet, the main challenge was still getting sufficient doses of vaccine and accumulating accurate numbers within medical systems that are often underfunded, understaffed, and at times hobbled by governments that don't want such numbers to be made public. What I'd like to talk about today is where we're at now, headed into the final month of 2021, and what we might expect in 2022 pandemic-wise. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. I would like to address a flurry of interrelated pandemic topics in this episode. So I've grabbed a small handful of articles to start with, all from the same day, which provide a quick overview of where we're at as of the day I'm recording this, in the final week of November 2021. All of these articles are from Reuters, and the first is entitled, Total COVID Deaths in Europe Could Exceed 2.2 Million by March, According to World Health Organization. The second is entitled, Germany Considers New COVID-19 Curbs and Compulsory Vaccines. The third is entitled, Pfizer's COVID-19 Vaccine Trial Data Shows Long-Term Efficacy in Adolescence. And finally, we will end with one that is entitled, U.S. Government Asks Court to Immediately Lift Stay on COVID Vaccine Rule. These pieces provide a decent, God's-eye-view summary of what's happening in the world right now, as most of the COVID-related trends are orbiting around new vaccination measures and guidelines, a small but vocal pushback against those efforts in many different countries, new waves that seem likely if something substantial doesn't change, and new waves that are already here that are already causing a great deal of both human and economic damage, and a small collection of new measures that are being implemented and considered, which are distinct enough that they may represent a turning point of sorts in how we're approaching this thing, especially if paired with a collection of new tools that are likewise emerging and which might change how we prevent and treat these sorts of infections. So jumping right in, at the moment, there's a grim-looking wave of new COVID infections washing across Europe. And like most other such waves across the wealthy world, at least, they seem to be most severe amongst the unvaccinated. And the numbers are pretty stark, with almost all of the most serious cases occurring in people who are unvaccinated or in at-risk groups, like the elderly or the immunocompromised. And though there are breakthrough infections amongst the vaccinated, they primarily have either no or relatively low-grade symptoms, which is good in the sense that local healthcare infrastructure isn't as strained by infections amongst the vaccine-protected, but it's less ideal and that these people are still contagious, if somewhat less so than their unvaccinated peers. So they can still spread the coronavirus, and some of the people they spread it to might be worse off than they are. The numbers are fluctuating pretty rapidly, but as of the day I'm recording this episode, 
Austria, in particular, is having a really bad time, with 1,113 infections per 100,000 people reported in the last week, which is over 14,000 new infections a day in a country with a population of under 9 million. And while deaths are fortunately still significantly down from their peak last December at this point, the trend line is headed worryingly upward, and that's the case across much of Europe right now, to greater and lesser degrees, a place where last year's winter brought truly abysmal conditions and a lot of spread and death, and this year is looking like it could be similar, if a bit lower in severity, because of the fairly widespread vaccination rate across the European Union. That said, there are a few factors working against the EU and other nations right now, including the increased infection rates seen in areas with high levels of the Delta variant, which has become dominant across much of the world because of those advantageous mutations it has. And we now know that the vaccines we've got wane in effectiveness over time. The data is still rolling in on this, but it would seem the antibodies generated by our bodies in response to the vaccines drop off a bit after a few months. And by something like six to eight months after receiving the second dose, most people have lost somewhere around 50% of the initial protection those antibodies granted. So that's from around 85 to 90% effective against the virus down to something like 67% effective, based on findings published in The Lancet in early October 2021, which is just one of several studies that have found similar things. And the rule of thumb understanding about this right now would seem to be that the vaccines are confirmed very effective for a while, but that effectiveness drops to about half of where it started after around half a year, which is why third doses have been approved for at-risk groups to help bolster those antibody populations, and why boosters, which are reduced dosages currently administered between six and eight months after the second full dose is received, for mRNA-based vaccines anyway, have been approved for some groups. And just the other day, as of the day I'm recording this, they were approved for all adults in the U.S. and in several other countries. So we're seeing some worrying new waves that might echo some of the worst moments experienced last year. And we're seeing reduced effectiveness that seems to be well countered by boosters. But boosters are new, and most people haven't received theirs yet. And thus a lot of the world's population is at greater risk than we have been over the past handful of months because of the weather turning cold in the Northern Hemisphere and more people spending time indoors sharing the same air, while at the same time their vaccine-granted immunity wanes, alongside their patients for pandemic restrictions, perhaps understandably in some cases. Part of this problem may be at least somewhat ameliorated by these boosters, and initial data is showing that having an additional boost in antibody production does outsized work and may last a lot longer and be a lot more potent than previous doses, despite it being a smaller dose, because it builds on the groundwork laid by the other two. But we're still waiting on more thorough data on this and likely won't know as much as we would like to know for another half a year to a year minimum. In part because of these new waves through Europe, we're seeing new lockdowns in areas that have already suffered through several lockdowns, with all the social and economic consequences that entails. 
We're also seeing new measures meant to nudge people who haven't gotten vaccinated into getting their jabs. In some cases saying you have to be vaccinated to do certain things. And in some, at this point, far fewer cases, implementing what amounts to a full lockdown for the unvaccinated, while the vaccinated enjoy comparably more freedoms. Vaccine mandates in some part of the world and in some industries have done pretty well, resulting in a 95% vaccination rate, despite initial polls suggesting a lot of people would fight the mandates and hold out, even to the point of quitting their jobs. So those mostly turned out okay, but we've yet to see fractious mandates and lockdowns of this kind across entire countries, which completely divide populations into vaccinated and unvaccinated, with one group essentially having more freedoms than the other. The health argument for such efforts are fairly sound in the sense that people who are unvaccinated are both more at risk personally and may thus further burden local healthcare systems if they get sick, and because they're at greater risk of getting sick and then passing it on to more people, which then amplifies the problem even further. But perceptually, this is very fraught territory, as for some, it reeks of double standards and favoritism, and thus might backfire. We're already seeing a lot of protests, some of them violent, in response to these new comparably quite divisive regulations and rules, and we've only just begun to see the rollout and announcement of full-on vaccine mandates in Austria, but Germany is reportedly considering the same, which seems likely to stir up even more resentment and discomfort and possibly violence. In the U.S., an attempt by the Biden administration to impose a vaccine mandate on companies which employ more than 100 people, or alternatively, requiring that everyone at such companies wear masks and get regularly tested, has been halted by the court while the legality of such a measure is questioned. But the administration is now pushing back on this hold, hoping to temper rising infection numbers in the states so as to avoid the same growth trajectory most of Europe is experiencing leading into the chillier months of the winter. Something else that might help ease these numbers is the deployment of vaccines for children, which were recently emergency approved by the FDA in the U.S. for kids ages 5 to 15, after a whole slew of studies showed that they were both safe and effective. And this is in addition to the existing full approval for people ages 16 and up. Younger children have typically faced less severe symptoms personally, but have also been capable of getting pretty bad cases on occasion, and even the not-so-bad cases have made them vectors through which COVID could spread. So even relatively moderate vaccination rates in this age demographic could help reduce spread in some populations and circumstances, including making the safe reopening of schools more tenable. As more vaccine manufacturing spins up and shipping channels untangle themselves from their current shortage-causing state, we'll likely also see more vaccines distributed throughout the non-wealthy world. 42 countries, mostly in Africa, haven't yet vaccinated even 10% of their populations at this point, and 60 countries haven't hit 20%. So filling in those gaps could help prevent spread regionally, but also globally making it less likely that new pro-disease anti-human mutations will arise in COVID as a bonus. 
potentially even more meaningful to those numbers, and perhaps even to the pace and tone of the whole pandemic, is the emergence of antiviral treatments for COVID that are in the process of being assessed by global medical regulators. While vaccines aim to prime a person's immune system so it's prepared if and when it encounters the COVID-causing coronavirus, antivirals are administered after someone comes down with COVID, and two antiviral pills, one made by Pfizer and one made by Merck, have shown very positive results in clinical trials and could be approved in some countries as soon as December. In the aforementioned clinical trials, one of the treatments, Merck's molnupiravir, reduced the rates of hospitalization and death in people who caught COVID and who started taking this treatment within a few days of infection by half. And Pfizer's Paxlovid reduced hospitalization and death rates by 89%. And both sets of numbers are considered to be very positive outcomes for antiviral treatments. These pills are also being met with a great deal of anticipation and optimism because unlike vaccines and the currently available antibody treatments, they don't require any needles and can be taken at home. So you'd get them by prescription, probably, at your local pharmacy. And for the next five days, after getting your test that says you're infected, you'd take some pills and receive those benefits, dramatically reducing the chances that you'll have a serious case of COVID. The major downside of these treatments is that they have to be taken within days of catching COVID, and much of the world is still not great at distributing and administering COVID tests, and that includes the U.S. There's also a chance that people will start taking the pandemic less seriously once such a casually acquired and administered treatment is available, because it will perceptually seem like less of a big deal. Which, I mean, they are potentially quite wonderful treatments, but even in these trials, folks were still being hospitalized and dying from COVID, even after taking them. So while it ups our chances of survival and not being burdened with permanent infection-related conditions substantially, it is not a silver bullet, and there's a very good chance almost 100% over a long enough timeline, that mutations will emerge which allow some new strain to overcome these antivirals, just like with the vaccines. So there's reason for optimism here, especially for folks who, for whatever reason, don't want to get the vaccine, as this would allow them to be relatively more protected than they are now, which in turn should ease the burden on medical infrastructure, which is mostly strained by those serious cases. And most of the serious cases are amongst the unvaccinated. And it should also help reduce infection rates because the coronavirus will be weakened by these antivirals. Though it's important to note that numbers on post-antiviral spread are not available in any serious form yet. So it may be that infection reduction capabilities of these treatments are limited. So we will have to wait on that aspect of these antiviral treatments. In summary, then, we are entering a new unknown period of both the biological aspect of this pandemic and the social and governmental one, as deaths in 2021 are already higher than they were throughout 2020. And there are a lot of worrying trends playing out right now around the world, alongside a great many gaps in our current distribution of much-needed resources and information.
There are some new tools that may soon arrive in our utility belts, though. So while there are still a lot of unknowns and dangers, there's also reason to suspect we may figure out a way to de-pandemic the planet and or defang COVID at some point in the foreseeable future. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkenman. This is the type of book that itself is quite good. It's written well, it raises some very interesting points, but the concept of the book alone I found quite compelling. The idea, and the origin of that title, is that the average person in the wealthy world in 2021 will live about 4,000 weeks, and that numerical realization alone may help you determine how you spend that time, but also realize the scope of your finitude. There is a memento mori aspect of that number, I think, because then it makes you think of how many weeks you've already spent and how many might have left, and then the passage of time begins to have a very different meaning with each week that ticks by, that week potentially spent on things that you don't find particularly interesting or important. But on the other hand, it can also make you appreciate smaller units of time that you have available, that you spend on people who are important to you, and thoughts and activities that you find meaningful. It's the type of book that inspires those sorts of thoughts. So if you're looking to have a good think about your life and not afraid to consider the fact that you will probably die after living roughly 4,000 weeks, consider picking up a copy of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkenman. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other work, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright. And I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.